for Friday, November 17th. This is What's the Point. This week on the show, saving families from the devastation of child exploitation, the impact of online predators, part two. In conversation with this week's virtual in-studio guest is your host, The Pointers, Joel Whitnable. One of the things that is so shocking to me, and I think that is almost like we have a, a hard time visualizing the online space. And, you know, what you said before about how nowhere else do adult offenders have access to a space where they can interact directly with kids. This doesn't exist anywhere else. And if it did, you know, if it existed in the physical space, if this, there was such a place, there would be an uproar about it. People would be losing their minds if something like this existed in, in the physical space or if it was happening in the physical space. It, it, the, the, we wouldn't. I don't even know if we'd be having this conversation because I think that there would be such a pushback that it would be immediately quashed and there would be no questions about how the heck we'd go about doing it. But for some reason, when it comes to the online space, and I think that obviously for technological reasons, there are a lot of explanations for why this, is a lot, this continues to happen. But I think that if people think about it in that way, that it is the same thing. Yeah, they're not in the same physical room together, but they're interacting and connecting. And with the technology now, with video cameras, webcams, and all this sort of stuff, they may as well be in the same place. And I, I think that that is something that can really maybe flip a switch for some people to think about and really you know, start to take this for the, the real, the, the threat that it, it, it can pose. Cause I think that, you know, Nodi, you mentioned how quickly these things can happen. And I think about that result of project limestone, where it went from initial contact with an, a suspect to an hour and a half later, that person was already driving to meet with a child that they assumed they were going to have sex with. It speaks to how quickly these sorts of things can develop. And it, it, that needs to be met with a level of awareness from both parents and, and young people to, to take this seriously. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's, it happens so fast. I think that is what is really important for people to understand is even, you know, and it's not, again, sometimes we go, well, aren't the parents paying attention or are they supervising? It's, you know, parents are doing a great job and doing the best they can. It's not we can't put this all on parents. It's the way the technology has been designed. As a parent, you could be monitoring. We talk to parents all the time who are doing an incredible job and still the contact can happen so quickly. They can't possibly be watching every second. I mean, the technology now is portable. Kids have it on them 24 seven. So it's, you know, it's impossible for them to be able to monitor this in the way that we required because there's no regulation on the internet, right? So the issue is, is that the other piece of it is it happens so fast, but also I think people would be really surprised to see the level of aggression and the the persistence of these individuals of how they're interacting with the kids and the exposure kids are having without, you know, adults around them really understanding what they've seen or what they have experienced and that the fear, the terror that can be experienced from that within them of, you know, knowing that it's, you know, it's scary and the person is on the internet, but it still feels 
like they could harm them in, in the real world. And we see because of the tactics that these individuals use, they make often kids make it very clear to kids and use that as a control tactic that they can reach them in the physical world and they could find them. And often they use that as a threat to maintain compliance of the child and gain control over them. So the kids are very, very fearful when they're experiencing this level, this type of victimization. And they, they fear for their physical safety offline because often that is the tactic used by the individual who was contacting them online. If somebody walked up to a child and said to them what we see them saying to them on the internet, immediately people would go, they would intervene immediately right there on the spot with the child and call the police. They would call law enforcement. That's the dichotomy here that's just so bizarre is how, what the internet affords in terms of the level of exposure, contact, access, and then the degrading acts that kids are experiencing and being exposed to with really a lack of response from industry in many ways in terms of responsibility that they afford for providing providing the platforms for giving access to the children without you know having any sort of age verification process you know, having any proactive strategies for managing things, not getting uploaded onto their services if it's a child and getting ahead of it before the harm starts happening or individuals contacting or communicating with children that they could be in this space because they don't have proper age verification processes, which are possible. Are young kids and even even young parents you know, millennial parents who who may not have grown up with a cell phone in their hand or a smartphone in their hand, but have spent the majority of their life with one. But now with kids who have grown up with these devices, are we almost desensitized to not take this sort of thing seriously? Like I think about, you know, as a journalist spending a lot of time on social media platforms, trying to gauge public opinion and looking at what people are talking about, you see a lot of just really heinous things said on the internet about whether it's comments on Twitter or Instagram, it's about every every single thing, especially now we're seeing everything that's happening with the Palestine-Israeli conflict and all of the just absolutely terrible vitriol that's being spilled online. Obviously, that's a part of that anonymity that we talked about. You're able to say things with essentially a mask on and no one knows it's you. But does that sort of repeated exposure to people just saying the worst of the worst can that almost desensitize the child or the parent when they see something like this where somebody reaches out, the intent is there, it's clear what the person is asking for, clearly what they're trying to do, but you just like, oh, it's just the internet. People do that, they're, people are sick and you just sort of brush it off. But then as we've said, these things happen so quickly that it almost develops into something much, much worse before it's noticed and it's already too late to do anything about it. Something's already happened. No, you're right. I think generally what we're seeing is that there ends up definitely being a desensitization and a normalization of it in general. But when it happens, when it's directed towards a child or a parent sees it directed towards their child, they're horrified. Yeah. So you know what I mean? Like I think in general, having a general conversation about it, people are desensitized in some capacity. And in some ways, there's things that are normalized. Um, you know, like even with kids with sending sexual images or in general, if they're talking about, you know, youth talking about other kids sending, you know, sexual pictures to each other, that's become something where they seem 
they can normalize it amongst themselves in conversations. And if, you know, if schools are having conversations with them, they're like, what's the big deal? Because it doesn't, it's not a big deal until it goes wrong. Right. And so I think in general, it's, they're desensitized, but if they experience a level of aggression and violence towards themselves, where it's no longer about sort of sexual experimentation and sexual development and relationships and intimacy and all those things where, where yes, kids are experimenting and negotiating how to weave in technology, how, how you negotiate that within relationships. That's very different than sexual violence that's being experienced, right? And so, you know, even where we have conversations with kids about, say, sexting, if you want to use that word, that's a very different conversation than when we're talking about sexual violence. And those things have been weaved together, I think, a bit that, you know, talking to kids about, oh, you shouldn't be sexting. You need to be careful about sexting. And, you know, that can be sexual images of children can constitute child like that constitutes illegal material, potentially, if it's created and it's shared on the Internet. That is a very different conversation than, you know, somebody who is acting out aggressively and violently sexually towards a child where they're experiencing sexual harm. I'm not a parent, so I can't, I can't put myself in, in that, like I don't have the same level of connection that someone who is, is maybe dealing with how to educate their young child about the internet, about connecting with other people online, what that means, and then weaving in this very difficult conversation about sex and about how about what healthy sexual attitudes are. Technically, if you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, and you're texting one another and you're, you know, that is much different than sort of communicating with somebody online and they're asking you for naked images. And if you've been desensitized enough, then you're like, yeah, yeah, it's not a big deal. And then like you said, it's only a big deal when it goes wrong. Obviously, Noni, you're you're involved with educating people about this and, and working with different organizations. Is there best practice for parents to educate their children about this because like I said I feel like it's such a tightrope because if you push too hard it's almost it's like that old adage you tell a teenager or somebody not to do something they're just going to go and do that thing and I think if you try and push them too far away and say you no internet time all the parental blockages on the internet you can't do this you can't talk to this person I don't know if that is the right approach but I also don't know giving them free reign on the internet, let them figure it out on their own. I don't think that's the right approach either. So clearly there's there's got to be somewhere in the middle, right? Absolutely. And I think what you're looking at really is that it would be the same thing as like how we would supervise kids offline. So if, you know, if you had a child who was says, you know, okay, bye mom, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the mall. You know, you wouldn't say, okay, bye you would ask questions. Okay, so you're going to the mall. Who are you going with? How long are you going to be there? When are you going to be back? How are you getting home? Contact me, you know, from here, I want to touch base with you. Uh, We would do that in the offline world, right? We need to do that in the online world as well. So they can't just kind of go into this space that's a public space intersecting with, you know, individuals that from anywhere around the world and so it's not supervised or there's not some guardrails in place, right? We have to put the guardrails in place for sure and be checking in. But we also know that things can still easily go wrong, 
right? And so what we also, what we would do offline too, is we need to do online is, you know, if something does go wrong, I'm here to support you. That's what I'm here for. My job is to, is to take care of you and protect you. And I want to know these things and I know these things can happen. So, you know, I'm always here for you, your safety's first. And then we might have a conversation later about it, but your number one, number one, I, I, I care about your safety and that's, that's my number one priority. So that's for sure that the same thing online is put the guardrails in place. And then I think what we have to talk to kids about is about healthy relationships, right? About healthy relationships. What do healthy relationships look like, sound like, feel like? And then what do unhealthy relationships look like, sound like, feel like? And what are control tactics? What is coercion? What's persistence? You know, what is respect? What's bodily autonomy? I mean, anything you're doing, you should never feel pressured or afraid if you don't or scared about the outcome if you don't comply, those kinds of things. And I think it has to be ongoing. It can't be a 30-minute crash course. It needs to be something where we're starting to talk to kids about this very young in an age-appropriate way with age-appropriate information and and material, but it, it really has to happen regularly. And I think what we, you know, we hear from kids often is, they don't know the difference between coercion. They know if you talk to them and you say like, what are, what's controlling in a relationship or what would be an unhealthy part of a relationship? Well, if someone's hitting you, that's really unhealthy, right? Um, yeah. Or if somebody is, you know, yelling at you or pinching you or kicking you or that's, un, yeah, that's really unhealthy. That's, that's abuse. That's true. But did you also know that if you say no to someone that you don't want to do something and they keep asking you over and over and over again and they're not listening to you and they use persistence, which is one of the most effective forms of control that we see used on the Internet to gain compliance by children, is that's control. Like that's coercion and that's actually not consent and and that's shocking to children, you know, or if you say, you know, what about guilt? And that also is a that's a control tactic or pity is a big control tactic that's used to get people to feel sorry for them, to get them to gain their compliance. And these are things that we don't often talk to kids about, and we need to be having those conversations and regularly. At the Canadian Centre for Child Protection here, we have amazing education material that can be used by schools, can be used for parents in an age-appropriate way that they can come in and, and get information that they can use with kids from five years old all the way up to high school. And I think that we really need to have these ongoing opportunities to talk to kids and to use what if situations, you know, as they get older to use situations that we're seeing happening and the information that's coming to light and say, you know, what do you think about this? Like, are you encountering this? Is this something you're seeing? Not just waiting for kids to come to us with problems, but checking in because sometimes kids don't know how to bring it up because it's awkward and they're not sure you know, how to talk about it, but checking in, like, have you heard about any of these things happening online? Are your friends encountering any of this stuff? You know, what, what do you think of this? And then talking about, you know, what if this did happen? Like, what would you do? How would you respond? How, what kind of refusal skills would you use? Like, are there things you could do in practice? Because we know that if kids have an opportunity to anticipate possible situations that they could encounter that could be dangerous, and then practice employing safe responses, they're more likely to do that if they encounter the situation. The conversations, obviously, it's going to weave into so many different territories between their, the child and their parent. But I think that paramount, it's, it's really just about safety. Obviously, you're talking about relationships, you're talking about sex, you're talking about technology, all these different things. But when it comes down to it, I feel like this is really 
most important is just about keeping the child safe and in a space that is really by its own nature right now, uh, more or less unsafe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're, you're absolutely right. And that's where sometimes the conversations come in where people think, you know, it gets us, it becomes a sensitive topic because they think that, you know, it's sensitive to talk to kids about, um, about sex or about having those conversations in school. And, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about sex. We're talking about safety. That's exactly right. We're talking about personal safety and that, in fact, all children have a right to protection and safety and that we need to be having these conversations with them everywhere. And also we need to understand that if something goes wrong, that that's understandable too, right? Even if we've taught them and we talk to them about safety and we've had these conversations and something still goes wrong, that can easily happen too. And so that we are here and we tell them that too, that if something does go wrong or if you, you know, you feel like you made a mistake or something happened and that we understand that as well. And that you can come to us, not to tell us that you got out of a situation successfully, but if you didn't get out of the situation and you're in over your head, we also want to know that. And we, we are here for you and we understand that that can happen. And that's still not your fault. Yeah. Creating that safe space to be able to come forward for sure. Not just the prevention side of it, but also if something happens side of it and then how we respond in a supportive manner. There's a couple more, just a couple more things I want to sort of go over. I don't like to, to cry over spilt milk, you know, talk about, you know, all the things that have gone on, all the failures that have gone on that have gotten us here. We're in the situation where, like you said, we've had this internet that's really just a wild west. It's unregulated. And there's all these things that we could have done. There's all the signs, you know, there's reports that go back 20 years that pointed to the increase in, in child sexual abuse on the internet. But I want to look sort of forward. And the report makes a bunch of recommendations about how we need to be acting on this from like we've already gone over with the therapy, the therapy side, the mental health, the supportive side. And, and, and obviously on the technological side, we need these tech companies to be taking an active role in removing this content from the internet and being active in that these things continue to pop up, even the same images, same videos and, and having systems in place that recognize that. But one of the things that I want to ask you about is the financial impacts of this. I think governments often think in dollars and unfortunately, you know, I have my own opinions about this, but unfortunately when you they see reports like this one from the Canadian Center that has just absolutely devastating qualitative data in there, quotes from parents talking about the devastation and how their families have just been torn apart by this. I don't see the reciprocated reaction of a government getting angry about this and being like, we need to act. Has the Canadian Center looked at potentially looking at the the dollars that this offense, this crime has on sort of the Canadian economy as a whole? You know, when you think about something like climate change, there's so much data out there that shows, look, if we invest right now into mitigation, adaptation, we will save billions down the line from saving our cities from flooding, from public health crises, X, Y, Z. Like it's better to invest now than it is in 20 years when we're going to be paying for the consequences of our inaction now. And I wonder if we're in a similar situation with what is happening 
right now. Because I think about you know going back to some of those quotes, those parents talking about depression, talking about anxiety, talking about high blood pressure, and all of these other impacts to our society, whether it be public health, whether it be mental health, whether it be the education system, whether it be, again, the criminal justice system, because we know that sometimes when these kids are abused or experience abuse, they could go on to either suffer later in life from trauma that gets them into involved with the criminal justice system in the wrong way, or even becoming perpetrators themselves. I think about all that, and I think about the dollars that that costs each of those systems, you know, the money that needs to be invested into mental health, which we've talked about, money that needs to be invested in public health to pay for the consequences of what we, if we pour money into these systems now, I think that we would be saving ourselves money in the long run. And I just wonder if the Canadian Center has looked at anything like that or or if you agree. Yeah, 100%. And now is actually being looked at from from a public health perspective of looking at it as a public health crisis, really. And all that you spoke to, all those dollars, again, that we see having to be poured into the support and intervention services as a result of this type of victimization. And and in all the sectors that you talked about in crossing into every aspect of an individual's life. So even what we hear from many survivors is that moving forward, many of them don't can't even enter into the workforce because they are um, because of the impacts on their mental health and physical health in many aspects that sometimes they're unable to actually work or to be able to stay in the workforce or go into uh, post-secondary education, which many people are really, really interested in. And it was a goal within their life of wanting to do it. But because of the distress and the ongoing impacts from this type of victimization, that they're unable to stay in school or to or to stay working and to stay with a job where it has lifelong impacts on them. And to your point, on our society as a whole. I may have brought this up in our last episode or, or previously have brought this up in another episode of The Pointer. But I, I, I think that every, every generation has what, what I would call like a blind spot. You know, I think back to when driving without a seatbelt was the cool thing to do. When we didn't really take the the safety of the seatbelt seriously, it was almost like a joke to mm-hmm. wear one. And then I think about smoking, which we didn't really, you know, it was just sort of a publicly accepted thing. You'd be in the doctor's office and the doctor would be lighting up a cigarette. And now that is, you know, we know how harmful those things are not to wear a seatbelt to smoke. But the generations when those things were there, it was sort of accepted. No, I think, like I said, it was a, it's a blind spot. Mm-hmm. I think that this, the internet, the online, the threats that are online and the fact that we just allow our children to have an iPad and a, a phone at a young age and have free reign on the internet, I think that that is going to be my generation's blind spot. Mm-hmm. We're going to look back in 20, 30 years and be like, mm-hmm. how the hell mm-hmm. did we allow this to happen? Mm-hmm. No, exactly. I think you're exactly right. We talk about that as well, that this is going, we're going to look back and like, this is going to be a stain on, on our society of, we're going to look back and go like, how on earth did that happen? Like, how was that allowed? How was it possible that kids were in talking that individuals from all over the world had access to them through these sophisticated devices that we put in their hands 
with no one around. Like they're managing this on their own when they're encountering these situations because they're on their own devices. And we're going to look back and go like, what were we thinking? Noni, you've given us an hour of your time. I I really appreciate it. The last thing I kind of want to try and end on a bit of a high note because the report talks about the resiliency of these parents. The fact that yes, they've suffered. Yes, they've gone through hell and come out the other side. And now many of them have either either used that and turned it into a strength or have even turned it into a strength in, in the advocacy space. And I, I wonder if you could speak to anything that you have seen in that regard in, in your experiences working with the Canadian Centre. Absolutely. There really aren't words for it, how in awe, I mean, really we are with the, um, the incredible courage and strength of families and survivors who have gone through this type of experience with their ability to somehow come around and come through. And I would say through is the best word because they're walking through the fire, going through the experience, the healing, the fighting to the other side where they are a force. These individuals who we're working with on an advocacy aspect who've had these experiences are the most courageous people who are such a force in action and their passion for moving forward for change, that it's inspiring. It's just, there's no other word than inspirational to see how they are taking such adversity and turning it into an incredible vision for what needs to happen, but mobilizing themselves with such an energy to come forward and fight for the protection of children that that is making a difference. So it already is making an incredible difference. And I think the more individuals who come together in this fight from those that have experienced it, as well as those working in it and anyone else to push for change in the protection of children, things are going to change. Things are going to get better. And in fact, we're already seeing that happen. So there certainly is hope. And with these types of conversations and with that we're having today, exactly what you're doing today on the podcast, thank you because you are contributing to that change. And this is what it's going to take is to continue to talk about it, question, and then do better. Well, I think the nice pat on the back is a perfect place to leave it for today. Noni, thank you so much. I'll give you the last word. If the parents have made it this far through this episode, where can they go? The Canadian Center's website, anything like that, where are the resources on that website? Can you give them any information about where they can go to look for that sort of stuff if they're, they are interested about learning more about anything that we talked about today? Certainly. I would really encourage parents to come into protectchildren.ca from that website. That is our website. But from there, you can enter into programs from both support side to our cyber tip for reporting, as well as to our prevention education material. You'll get it all through protectchildren.ca. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Noni. And thank you to all of you for spending your valuable time listening to us today. We at The Pointer truly appreciate it. Thanks again. I hope you'll come back next week for another episode of What's the Point? The show this week was hosted by Joel Whitnable, produced by yours truly. Music from Shahed. Check out new episodes of What's the Point weekly at thepointer.com and find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Chalmers. Thank you for listening. See you next time.